Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subject, subjects with interesting people. Um, and I'm so pleased to have Tom Rogan on this week. We're going to be discussing Tucker Carlson's Putin interview, a subject where uh, th that I have seen shockingly little serious commentary on because so much of the commentary seems to be about whether Tucker should or should not have done this interview. And we'll, we'll get into that question as well. But um, I also wanted to ask Tom about uh, the substance of what Putin said during this interview. Um, Tom is uh, a it's over at the Washington Examiner. He's an online editor and foreign policy writer there. Uh, he writes frequently on these kinds of issues, including about Russia, China, and the Middle East, um, and holds a Bachelor of Arts in War Studies. I wish American universities still uh, had a, a, a subject called War Studies. Um, but they, they do at the military, the service academies, and maybe <laughs> at the Citadel, but not, not civilian colleges. Yeah. So this is from King's College London. Um, and he has a Master of Science in Middle Eastern politics and uh, many, many degrees from many places. You've read his work in The Wall Street Journal, uh, The Washington Post, Reuters, The Independent, The Atlantic, National Review, Telegraph, The Guardian. Uh, but his his permanent home, as I said, is at The Washington Examiner. So he knows a lot about these issues and he's been writing about them and thinking about them for a long time. So uh, welcome, Tom, to High Noon. Thanks, Inez. I appreciate the kind introduction. <laughs> um, so, so like I, I said in your introduction, it's it's odd to me that there has been um, very little, so, so far as I can tell, very little substantive analysis of of what Putin said in this interview. But but like everyone else, we'll begin with the question of whether or not uh, Tucker Carlson did a, a good piece of journalism, or um, whether it was somehow illegitimate for him to to go and interview. Vladimir Putin. Before the interview came out, I got a lot of pushback on Twitter for tweeting that either he had done an excellent piece of journalism, a brave piece of journalism that would be important for the world to watch, um, or he was about to humiliate himself like Jane Fonda, um, you know, playing Escalatio with with the North Vietnamese and posing on uh, on on uh, um, cannons that were aimed at American soldiers. Right, so. Uh, which which was it? Um, how, how what is your sense of how Tucker conducted himself in this interview? Yeah, so I I, th I think it with the interview generally uh, went very well. It, on the caveat though that people um, judge what Putin says against the historical record uh, and and think about it that they don't take it literally. And you know some people and I and I mentioned this you know I referenced one person in my piece. Uh, on Twitter, who had a random Twitter account but seemed to have a big following, was taking Putin literally at his words. That that that's a problem if you do that. But in terms of the questions and the general form of the interview, I thought it was um, beneficial. And and you know, as one example, uh, people were giving uh, Tucker Carlson quite a lot of criticism for the early stage of the interview where Putin, especially went on this long historical or a historical rant um that he didn't interrupt putin well every and and you know democrats republicans every american president and senior official uh, has experienced some variation of that where putin goes on 45 minutes sometimes a long list of grievances and if you want to get into a discussion you kind of have to just let him rant um and and so to blame Tucker Carlson for that, I think, is unfair in the sense that it doesn't blame every former president who's met Putin for experiencing the same thing. I mean, Tucker does generally have this this kind of hands-off interview approach, which to my mind does not make him, even though I, I, I like a lot of his programming and stuff, um, has, does not make him a top interviewer in, in my view, because he does really just let people talk. Um, and, and he did a bit of that here, but I, I didn't find it when he actually asked questions. And as you say, there was this 45 minute period in the beginning where Putin was basically not entertaining questions. Um, but he did press him repeatedly during that period on, uh, why is this relevant? Let's go to 2022 when you invaded the, the sovereign borders of the country next to you, you know, <laughs> please, tell us the relevance of this very long story beginning in, in 800 AD. Uh, and he did push back quite aggressively, I thought, actually, on on that point. Um, but yes, I mean, my assessment is, is very similar to what you wrote and what you just said, which is that aside from the fact that, yeah, like this is his general style to allow people to talk, and it's very difficult not to allow Putin to talk when you are sitting with the dictator of the country in the country uh, that he controls. Um, 
I thought that the questions that Tucker asked, generally speaking, were relevant. They were um, they were not obsequious questions, in my view. There were several key points, um, and maybe we'll get to some of them, where Putin was very clearly unhappy mm. about the questions that were being asked. Um, he did, at the end, ask about the Wall Street Journal reporter who's, who's being right. killed in Russia, which was a brave thing to do, honestly, um, in, in the situation that he was in. I mean, we'll get we'll get to Putin in a minute, but I, I actually thought I, I thought, you know, I would give Tucker like a B or a B plus on this. I thought this was a, a, a let's say an elusive, uh, illuminating interview with with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the one area where um, perhaps uh, he could have been stronger is pushing Putin on the discrepancy between um, his argument to Tucker Carlson in the interview that Russia has no interests beyond Ukraine, doesn't want to threaten NATO. And some pretty recent speeches, quite frankly, uh, including a long historical record of Putin talking about um, natural Russian claims uh, to, I mean, actually in that same interview to Poland, for example, but certainly threats to Estonia, referencing Peter the Great, which he had done in a speech uh, last year. Um, and then secondly, the Russian, uh, what they would call their special services, but their intelligence services, some of the malevolent activities that they get up to that specifically affect Americans in a way that I think dilutes Putin's narrative that openly, um, or, or his overt narrative that he seeks you know, a compromise with the United States in which we can all get along. This is someone who is ultimately an ardent adversary, but still I think Putin's sense of the United States is so um, you know, lamentable or, or his view is so negative towards the United States that did trickle through the interview and I, I think you know people watching Putin um, again with a sense for the historical record which is obviously a lot harder like a lot, a lot of Americans I mean I, myself you know a, a, a very few people are going to have a immediate baseline of knowledge for you know Central and Eastern European or Central European um, you know medieval history um and and so or early modern history so you know there's a challenge to holding putin to account but but digging a little bit in especially on some of the second world war stuff which is just totally fantastical um is possible yeah um i i was hoping that if any americans were still awake by the the middle of his rant um that the way that he described world war ii as beginning maybe being the reference point of history that a lot of Americans would know would give them a clue as to how seriously to take his overall, um, or at least not seriously is the wrong word, how, you know, how much accuracy to assign to his, his vision of history, which by the way, I actually, I think he does believe, um, if there's anything that, uh, he's sort of demonstrated over time is this is, he's consistent, um, on, on having this historical view of the world that doesn't align in key ways with the actual history of the region. Um, so let's start with, let's start with the first 45 minutes of this two and hour, uh, two hour, 20 minute or so interview where he really does, he begins, um, in, you know, before the first millennium describing essentially the intertwining of, um, I don't even want to call it Russian and Ukrainian. It's more just like Moscow and Kiev, um, and the civilizations around those. And he tells the story all the way up through World War II. Um, what, what do you think as a, like, what do you think Americans should, first of all, what, what are the key points there where, there where Putin is, is writing a very convenient history for, for his country? Um, and two, what are the important pieces of Putin's understanding of Russian history himself for Americans to understand? Well, I, I think the, the again the crunch point when Putin says, and, and this is obviously jumping, you know, further towards the end of that first element. But when Putin says that it was the uh, Poles who invited the Second World War by pushing Hitler too far, I thought that was a very striking and important thing for people to pay attention to because it is utterly incompatible with reality. I mean, the the, the Nazis were putting a massive amount of pressure on the Poles to open up the Danzig corridor, to essentially cede them space. And the Russians cut a deal with them. The Soviet Union cut a deal. And, and people can Google this, right? It's it's not the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, uh, you know, is not something that is um, historically controversial for most people. And as a secondary point there, when Putin is essentially blaming 
um, the Poles for starting World War II and giving Hitler a pass. How is that a historical narrative in any way sympathetic towards Putin's idea now that he is fighting in Ukraine to stop neo-Nazis? The contradiction in terms is laughable almost. Um, but going back to that earlier historical record, I think the top line is the idea of this um, symbiosis of Russian cultural um, history and territorial activity and, and you know imperial activity, as it were. And so he talks a lot about Rus and the, uh, the early stages of Russia uh, and various princes and principalities and essentially is fusing different threads of localized, um, you know, empires or kingdoms to try and paint the picture of an evolving, you know, greater Russia that is a sort of almost manifest destiny of Russia that he is now the, the guardian for. Um, the problem is when you deep dive into the actual details, this is, you know, he he's drawing strands between uh, disparate threads and overlooking elements where the idea of you know a greater uh, Russia uh, is not the case and and you know again it, it it's there's a lot of history that he's talking about there but a lot of it when um, one looks into the details is just not accurate uh, and and it, it's it's also quite I think interesting when you consider that the um, he, he mentions the story in the 1980s when he was would have been a KGB officer traveling around Ukraine and finding out that everyone he ran into identified as Russian or Hungarian. Well, if that's the case in relatively recent history, why are so many Ukrainians, to the shock of the Russians who thought they would simply give, lay down their arms and yield, why are so many Ukrainians uh, essentially so resolute in trying to stand up for the idea of an independent Ukrainian statehood and also going to that cultural level, which is so important for, uh, I, I think, Putin's, uh, certainly his domestic mythos. Why is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, for example, separating itself from the Russian Orthodox Church, which supposedly has had this natural um, spiritual you know, reach that would go beyond uh, state nationality? And so... The devil in the detail of what Putin says is applied to reality becomes, I think, highly problematic for his narrative. Um, and 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 again, as a top line point for Americans, there, you know, it is a it, this weaving of fiction and history. Uh, I think you know people should look. Well, what? It, why would someone do that? And the reason is to to paint. Um, a narrative that is favorable to Russians interest to, to Putin's interests, uh, which is again, ultimately the, the, you know, the formulation or the formation of a um, new Russian imperium. Um, and certainly in, you know, with its proximate neighbors. And so, um, you know, that is the top line from all the historical, you know, names and date dropping that he did. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, you're right to draw this tension between the the alleged um, sort of reasoning behind invading Ukraine to quote unquote denazify it, um, when it's really clear in the first forty five minutes of this interview that the claim, and I'm I'm not saying that Hitler and Putin are running the same kind of uh, political system or they're doing the same sorts of things domestically or even internationally, the claim is actually kind of similar, right? Which is Anywhere where there are Russian speakers, anywhere where there's a pocket of Russian ethnicity, or where the, the Russian empire at any stage of its development, right, has ever had a control over, there, the, I basically extend the, if not the borders, literally, of, of the Russian Federation, at least the, like, sort of sphere of influence to all of those places. Um, and actually, really, my favorite moment of pushback from Tucker came exactly on that matter of Ukraine being uh, having a large like Hungarian population and, and having lands within its, its modern borders that were once attached to Hungary, um, where Tucker implies, well, like if you take over Ukraine by this same standard, this same historical standard that you're applying, I mean, uh, does Orban have a claim against you essentially for these old lands? And you could tell immediately that Putin did not like that question. Because the right. way that he wants to tell history is only Russia 
gets to extend into everybody else's borders um, to claim any territory where their people might re reside or where they might have controlled, you know, 400 years ago or 800 years ago or a thousand years ago. When the reality, the obvious reality of especially the post-war world is, yeah, like every, every country, particularly in that region, but even well beyond it, is th those national borders contain pieces of what used to be culturally or nationally the, the countries around it, right? Poland has pieces that used to be Germany. Ukraine has pieces that used to be Hungary, right? Russia itself has many lands that used to be like ethnically this or that. Um, and, and the reason that the West has wanted to as much as possible freeze the borders is because those kinds of claims cause wars, right? And they cause instability um, the recognition of of those essentially ethnic claims makes the borders uh, fragile and and unstable. No, uh, well, exactly, and also the fact that I think you know there is the nation states that exist in these areas essentially have you know a functioning democratic structure in which uh, the voices of their citizens are reflected, even if there may be grievances. Um, you know, this, this situation, for example, in northern Estonia, the Baltic states in terms of their Russian speaking populations is significantly more stable, even though the Russians, the Russian government attempts to, you know, exploit frictions and, and expand them. It's significantly more stable than what you see in terms of some of the ethnic uh, and religious um, tensions in the uh, Balkans. And so this idea for Putin that, that, you know, this is all Russia and it belongs with Russia, I, I think leads to the central question for Americans, which is when you, and you do see this in elements of the, you know, the right that we should seek a detente with Russia and we've been unfair on Russia and, you know, Putin sort of has a point here. You can only make that argument if um, you A, accept a, you know, false, you know, moral principle or a false reality that Putin pervades that all of these people want to be Russians and it's, you know, his backyard, etc. But you also have to sacrifice the or, or, or yield that the United States essentially adopted the wrong uh, strategy uh, in the Cold War, certainly the latter part of the Cold War, where it became more territorial, like, frankly, in a sense, less ideological as a global project from the Soviet Union, that these that it is in America's interest to allow countries like Estonia, Poland, um, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, to be absorbed, Ukraine, obviously, to be absorbed by Russia. And that those, you know, the free will of those peoples should not matter to the United States. Um, and that essentially, it's worth it to give Putin that. And, and as a secondary point here, what I always find quite striking in terms of, I think, the weakness of that argument is not simply that, that I would say, moral betrayal and uh, betrayal of people who have been very good allies, who do spend more than 2% significantly, who would fight on day one. Uh, frankly, some of those nations who would fight with us against China in the Pacific because they value their relationship with America so much. Uh, these countries are not Germany, for example, which is not a very good ally, in my view. Um, the secondary point is that if you are suggesting, as some do, that we should seek some grand compromise with Russia and see those things, what do you expect you're going to get back from Russia? Because there's not a lot that the Russians, frankly, because of their economic weakness, would be able to provide to the United States uh, beyond perhaps a cooling of, you know, brinkmanship and tensions. And maybe that's worth it. But then you need to accept that you are essentially yielding to Putin's fear game, right? That this idea of strength and America first um, is not so America first if essentially the only benefit you're getting in return for giving them all this territory uh, and sacrificing all, the, all these peoples is maybe they're a little bit less likely to, you know, dangle nuclear threats. Uh, and, you know, we have our own potent nuclear forces which have deterred, do deter the Russians. My view is you... you, you you stick with the old game, which is respect the Russians, listen to them, uh, deal with them where possible, but don't dance to uh, their uh, less beautiful swan uh, dance. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's. Sorry, I know that was a bit of a rant. No, no, no. no. I, I, really, I was thinking about like 
the the fact that I, I really think like uh, Putin miscalculated not his assessment of the West, and he's known as for the most part as a kind of hard-headed realpolitik, plays the the hand his country has internationally fairly well. I mean, that's his reputation, right? Um, and I think it's a large part of his popularity with his own people, but um, it, there is this just this big blind spot spot in the history that he's telling, especially the more modern history, um, that he pretends essentially that the the wills of those peoples that you're referencing have not independently been stirred by Russian behavior in in the past, right? So he pretends that Ukrainian national identity doesn't exist, which is historically insane, um, not least because of some of the things he points to, he points to badly, right? By saying, um, bringing up like the, the Volinia region, bringing up the massacres that took place there during <laughs> World War II against, and he's right about this part, about not just against, um, you know, Jews and Poles, but also Russians, right? Um, but in, in doing that, he, he is already <laughs> giving away the game that the, it, this is this is a national identity. This is not um, something that was invented by the CIA, whatever machinations they may have had, whatever bumblings they have in Ukraine. The, the feeling of Ukrainians that they don't want to live under the Russian system is in no small part caused by Putin himself and the actions of, of Russia. Um, well, it, it, exactly. And also, you know, it, it requires the notion, frankly, that the CIA created the Holomodor, right? Uh, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviet mistreatment of Ukrainians, the CIA didn't even exist then. That is a key birthing point for the idea of uh, a separate Ukrainian uh, identity, uh, or uh, not a birthing point, but certainly a, a, a great fueling catalyst um, because of Stalin's treatment. Uh, there is a reason that, you know, the Ukrainians, um, some of them, were sympathetic to the Germans. Now, I think in the balance of historical record, that obviously was a significant moral mistake in the same way that, you know, there were sympathizers in other countries, but there was a sizable pro-Nazi sentiment uh, in Ukraine during the Second World War, which obviously provides ammunition to Putin. But to suggest that that is the same case today would be tantamount to suggesting, you know, that we need to fear Germany because that was the birthplace of you know, the Third Reich. And and frankly, you know, the, the Germans are not exactly very militarist anymore in any sense of the word. Um, frankly, that I would say they're too, you know, absent in there. They need a bit more militarism. Of course, not the style of before. But regardless, this, this idea, Putin, his creation of um, fake history with some historical reality, you know, in there, you know, to, to lend credibility, which is the old KGB trick, you know, you don't tell an entire lie, you bleed your lie with, you know, sprinklings of historical truth. But then Putin's key strength, I think, is his ability to see, to come across, uh, and, and this sort of, you know, the self-presentation as someone who is frustrated, serious, but credible. Um, you know, he's a good actor in a way. And, and I think, I don't think he believes, um, you know, more than half of what he says, but I think he does believe half of it. And the rest is, you know, very compelling, you know, theatre, which is, you know, theatre is very important to, you know, Russian um, political presentation, much the same way, well, in a different way than it is in the United States. But but there's a lot of theatre going on here that people need to, to recognise. And again, I, I always come back, you know, the overriding narrative with the Russians, whether it's negotiating a treaty, you know, an exchange, whatever, is, you know, holding what is said by the Russians to uh, what is done uh, over a period of time. Uh, and, and and that, you know, that, that bears relevance, for example, when Putin is suggesting it was the deep state and Robert Gates, etc., who prevented uh, some idea of a positive detente with the United States under the Bush administration. Well, the reality is those framework which could have been beneficial which you know frankly you could see areas on you know i would say you know arms control treaties where it would be beneficial to both sides in the world to to you know agree major deals the reason those deals tend to fall apart is not because of a deep state going behind american presidents but because when you get into the devil the, the devil of the detail in terms of enforcement mechanisms inspections access 
you know, various protocols, what the Russians say does not match up to what they do. And we, we have numerous examples of this in more recent history under Putin himself, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Russians sign that and then systematically break it and scream that it's a lie when everyone in NATO, including Hungary, for example, and Turkey say that, no, they have broken it. Uh, or the um, Chemical Weapons Convention. And they say, no, you know, we've signed up to this. We never work on chemical biological weapons. And then they, with a level of gall that, frankly, only, you know, Putin's government could pull off, uh, use various, you know, high-potency nerve agents um, and engage in some very, you know, systemic biological uh, weapons research. And so, you know, th this is not the, 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 the reality as measured against what is said is so fundamentally divergent that I think, and that's the point I think that comes out, that that's that grounding point that if you watch the Tucker interview with that context, then it is positive because you, you can sort of begin to see through, you know, the, the deceptions. But of course, it does require the harder effort of, you know, doing some research and, and looking into some of this stuff, which I think, frankly, Putin's appeal with some Americans is that, you know, understandably in some sense, they haven't, you know, looked into the detail of this. They're just sort of listening at face value and it seems compelling. So I, I think he does believe largely that the vision of the version of history he told, um, I think when it comes to more modern uh, sort of geopolitical machinations. I think you're right. It's very Machiavellian in what he prevent, presents and it's clearly to a purpose. I think the evidence that he really does believe this vision of history and in particular that Ukrainian national identity is some kind of fiction invented by the West is he, by all accounts, he thought this war would be over, you know, quite quickly. He did not anticipate the depth of Ukrainian resistance. And like what you said, the, the number of people who were willing to die not to be ruled directly by Russia um, and to keep their their national borders, I, I it really seems to me now with the benefit of hindsight and looking back since 2022 that this this was you know um, that this was was a mistake that Putin made that exactly because of his ideological view of history he didn't move in with the like the he the he a heavy enough force to smash through what was I think anyone in in Ukraine would have immediately told you right like. Uh, of course, this is not going to be easy. Like, of course, this is not going to be um, a, a war without mass resistance from the Ukrainian side. But because he has this ideological frame, um, he was not able to anticipate that kind of resistance because he thinks it's a fiction invented by the CIA. Right. And I, and I, well, I also think it's the point that he he believed um, that, that the population would be malleable, that you could essentially coerce, terrorize into quick obedience and and that the real the state structure the government the military would essentially yield that russian agent provocateurs agents in place with inside those ukrainian government structures would facilitate the russians but clearly he thought this would be a walkover and the best i mean the you know absolute proof as it were for that is the russian uh, air assault uh, that was launched in kiev in the beginning of the war that you, you do not send paratroopers into you know the enemy's capital city unless you believe they can you know uh, be relieved in short order by you know mechanized or armored forces moving in be behind them otherwise they're just going to as you know was the case get annihilated but he still sent them in which shows again he thought there would be this collapse i also think his one of the challenges is the deep um you know where where the delusion extends and you still see this that that what putin is told um by uh, he he believes uh in the own you know his own sort of um fiction of of uh this the, the russian military that he has rebuilt but pumped huge amounts of money in uh was going to be a a highly effective entity that his, you know, when the Russian intelligence services were briefing him, we've got all these people in Ukraine who are going to essentially implode the government when we go in, or uh, the, he, he totally ignored the level of corruption and um, uh, influence of yes men, uh, which still exists, frankly. I mean, Narishkin, who is the head of the Russian um, foreign intelligence service, the SVR, was the only one uh, as we understand it, to significantly, you know, put a, an argument to Putin that this is going to be harder than you think before Ukraine. 
which is partly why I think you see that um, memorable exchange, which is worth people going back to if they haven't seen it, uh, of uh, before the war, um, people just go into YouTube and type in Putin SVR chief, you know, to find this, where Putin is lecturing Narishkin very harshly in public uh, over whether he supports this, um, you know, referendum or, or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly at the time, but essentially supports the sort of war effort. Um, you know, Putin does not like uh, disagreement. He doesn't like to be challenged in, um, you know, his perceptions. There's an ego here that, you know, is quite personally, I think, uh, a liability for him um, that we need to be aware of. Um, well, let's let's move to the NATO arguments, um, because I, I think, first of all, he doesn't get to 2014, um, the Maidan revolution and, and NATO until an hour, more than an hour into this interview. Right. So um, I think I'm just based on my recollection could could be slightly off a little bit. But he, there's a large part of the interview before he even gets right. to Na anything regarding NATO. Right. Um, and I think it's related to what we're talking about, this sort of blind spot, um, because the story that he tells about NATO is the West, we keep telling the West, you know, you're threatening us with the expansion of NATO, you're threatening us with the expansion of NATO, you're threatening us, um, and they keep ignoring us and, and adding more countries to NATO that are closer and closer to our borders. And I think there's a part of, especially the right, but generally, I think, um, especially without a lot of the background uh, of the history of the region, I think that sounds kind of reasonable to Americans on first first glance, right? That um, you can certainly understand from a pragmatic perspective why Russia would not like the NATO alliance, you know, right on its border. We are historical enemies. Um, you know, it just sounds like a reasonable a reasonable request to make. So, what really is the story of of NATO expansion, and um, what would you like to fill in, let's say, around uh, Putin's Putin's narrative on this? Well, there is, I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think there there is an element of reasonableness, certainly in the 2004 recession of some of the Baltic states, that implications, not, not commitments, the Russians always say it was commitments, or Putin says it was commitments given that NATO would not expand. I mean, that is just not true. But implications by Western leaders that expansion was not a key concern um, essentially went you know, the, 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 what happened is that in with this 2004 recession, um, then George W. Bush, you know, believed as part of the kind of promote freedom agenda, countries wanting to be associated with the United States, that that the U.S. would go forwards with that. And that obviously greatly upset, you know, Putin for the reasons you outlined there. But I think the fundamental point here is that, well, number one, why did those countries want to join NATO didn't come from the ether that it was because of systemic Russian efforts to, you know, undermine their democratic, democratic structures and democracies, um, because of the historical record of threat because of again, the imperial interest that Putin, they know Putin has pervaded, and essentially free countries wanted to join a defense alliance, and the United States, you know, and other NATO members all, you know, said yes to that all the other NATO members. Uh, so there was a democratic legitimacy to the choice that Putin cannot, even if he has a grievance, say, as he does, or cannot say legitimately as he does, um, that this was some outrage offense. Essentially, they were joining a defensive alliance. And, and you know, the Russian um, paranoia over NATO is to some, you know, I think, significant extent felt, you know, deeply. Um, but you know, the, the, Russia does not get a veto on the democratic choices of other nations. And, you know, what is, is, I mean, I, the, the more relevant point here, I think, is, you know, Ukraine's, uh, the narrative that Putin put forward in, you know, before the war is that Ukraine was imminently going to join NATO. Uh, I mean, clearly, that was not the case, even if you think that a future American government or British government or Polish government would have supported that. The French and Germans wouldn't have. I mean, the Turks wouldn't have. There are many different nations with it. And everyone in NATO has to agree to accept a new member, certainly in the context of Russian threats. I think there's an awareness of that 2004 experience, 2007 experience, uh, in terms of NATO calculations. And so 
yes, did Putin have a grievance? He did, but it wasn't the kind of absolute justifiable grievance that he pretends it was. And ultimately, you know, free peoples decided to do something through their democratic structures. Uh, and it is, you know, to this day, the Russians that attempt to, um, you know, through their intelligence apparatus, undermine, attack the Baltic states, 2007, major cyber attack in Estonia, versus the other way around. Um, you know, again, and that's why they joined NATO, right? They were concerned about that, um, you know, threat from Russia. And if we look at what Putin has done to Ukraine, well, if the Baltics weren't in NATO, would he have done that to them? And, and would that have been good for, um, you know, international stability and the basic moral right of peoples to live in freedom? And I think one of the reasons that Putin's argument has more sympathy with Americans now than it did is the idea of the, the blurring of the lines, which I think he quite skillfully does, of uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan to a lesser degree is America, certainly the war in Iraq is an American you know, effort to spread freedom, uh, you know, in some sense as it was, being, um, you know, such a debacle as it turned out to be. And that, the, you know, when so when you say to Americans, you question that idea of should America always be standing everywhere for human freedom, it, 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 you know, you dangle the bell a little bit in American minds of could this lead to another Iraq disaster if we push the line too hard here? Um, and so it's this sort of mixing of, you know, different things with a thread um, that ignores, again, democrat existing democratic structures versus Iraq situation, choosing to join a de defensive alliance. Uh, and And to me, that you know, essentially reduces a lot of the um, political potency, at least in terms of how we should, you know, approach foreign relations with Russia to what is otherwise, and, and is, a, you know, to some sense, uh, in, in the Russian mind, a legitimate grievance. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few thoughts I want to respond to that with. One, I mean, I think a lot of Americans are so with, with a good reason are so cynical about our own system and democratic accountability here um, that those those lines about democracy and liberal democracy and freedom, um, they, they ring quite hollow in our own domestic crisis, right? Um, but there's this lack of understanding of how that those words, what those words mean to people uh, from the, the former Soviet satellite states, for example, um, they, they still have, I, I would say that in a lot of these states, it's still, it's still 1983 in America. Um, you know, that's how they think of, of our system, uh, which, which uh, is kind of charming to me, actually, that um, reminds me of a better time in America. But anyway, uh, no, th there is this sense, if you want a very good modern example happening right now of the, the process by which a lot of these states joined NATO, uh, you can look at Finland right now. Right, because Russia is threatening its neighbors, um, both covertly and by marching armies across their border. And now Finland, which did not have much interest in joining NATO, now Finland, you know, is in and wants to be wants to be part of NATO. And now he has NATO directly on his border, right? Um, in a way that would not have happened if he had not invaded Ukraine. There was no interest, as far as I understand. Maybe you can correct me, but there was not much interest uh, in Finland joining NATO. Um, before this war, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. He's creating, <clears throat> excuse me, he's creating the conditions in which these free peoples, as you say, feel that they become more desperate to join a security alliance like NATO um, with the way that, that uh, Putin's Russia behaves. And then there's, there's this other element that I keep because of my family background in Poland and stuff. Um, I keep reintroducing to this discussion. So there, there's the, the hard headed security part of this, where when Russia acts aggressively towards its neighbors, those neighbors become uh, not shockingly more interested in joining the West or NATO. Or um, There's also just the, the, there really is a border between two systems there. Um, and as much as, as uh, there are legitimate criticisms of, of the Western system now and in, in what seems to be disrepair and decay, um, the fact remains in sort of a hard-headed pragmatic sense, domestic sense, you know, you have the, the example of, of Ukraine and Poland, pretty close to the same number of people, 
pretty close to the same D GDP when the Soviet Union collapses, right, in the late 80s. Um, one, essentially remaining a Russian satellite state until the, the mid-2010s, um, and one, very clearly joining with the West, joining the EU, joining NATO, et cetera, et cetera, and living uh, in a more liberal democratic system, that border that started out basically the same is now a four times GDP multiplier. Right. I mean, Poland right. is unfathomably richer than the Ukrainians with whom they started out basically on par. Um, and, and, and people see that. So they see that with all the criticisms of the West now, you know, that, that life under the Russian orbit meant a lot of corruption, which is, was responsible for the protests, not the CIA, uh, the pro protests in Belarus uh, in, in 2020, the kind of um, poor economic outlook that the average person has, in, is especially as a satellite state, but even within Russia itself, right? Um, and unlike Russians in Russia, these people have no ethnic tie to the Russian empire to be proud of or, or whatever. Um, and so it becomes a quite straightforward proposition. Join the West, become much wealthier, uh, gain political key political freedoms, um, even if not in sort of perfection, um, and and just fundamentally live a better and a life where your kids actually have opportunities that their grandparents didn't, or stay with the Russian system. There's this very stark demarcation between the two systems, and it's clear to people on the border which system is more successful as of now. And so Putin has that problem that he won't acknowledge that the reason his satellite states and his border states are spinning off into the orbit of the West is because there's a reason the people there want to. They look across their borders on the other side and they see a life much better than what the Russian empire is able to offer them. No, I, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, you know, again, you, you draw that in really important Poland, obviously, with some recent political challenges, but there's come through them, new government, you know, there's been a lot of tensions in much the same way there have been here over uh, the role of the judiciary in, in politics and, you know, the power of the executive, but the polls have got through it. What is the situation in Russia? Well, Putin is banning even marginal presidential candidates that might pose a challenge to his rule. Corruption remains endemic and is a function or is a, you know, just part and parcel of the system. The system relies uh, on corruption as it did in Ukraine and to a degree still much still does in Ukraine um, rely on corruption. And, and the average person's prospects and sense of um, opportunity, I think, are greatly diminished. But, you know, beyond, I mean, Poland's GDP, for example, is set to overtake the UK. I mean, and that that is a you know tribute to, frankly, the democratic capitalist model. Um, now you can make criticisms about some of the you know social welfare in the Western Europe, which I think are very legitimate. But, but again, that basic point of human aspiration and opportunity is clearly better served uh, by uh, the broad Western model than it is by you know the kleptocratic Russian model. Um, at the same time. There is this, you know, you mentioned Finland. Um, you know, it, it's important for people to remember it. Finland hosted the 2018 uh, Helsinki summit between Presidents Trump and uh, Putin because the Russians felt that Finland would be essentially a somewhat neutral country to go to. And in this, in that short space of time, now Finland has, you know, directly joined NATO. Again, why is that? Well, because, because the Russians, you know, essentially messing around uh, in Ukraine, but also the Finns recognizing this is part of a broader project, you know, for Putin. It is not, as he told Tucker Carlson, just about Ukraine and this special link. It is about a broader project that he believes to some degree or desires, certainly, um, Russian domination uh, of, you know, proximate nations. Um, uh, he would desire that with the Chinese were he able to. Um, but the discrepancy between this great, and I think actually in the longer term, China's going to pose a real challenge for Putin as much as it is an uh, economic lifeline at the moment. Because I noticed how, how uh, friendly, his, his careful, even like in right. contrast to the, the sort of masculine image that right. the nationalist image he projects, projects towards the West, he was very ginger talking about China. And I thought that was interesting. 
Yeah, no, I mean, and and I I like that. I think that was very noticeable, and that's why I would say this is actually a really important point for um, one of the reasons. I think I should emphasize this more in my piece. One of the reasons that interview was, in my view, certainly more of a gain than a loss is that any you know intelligence analyst, someone looking at the nuance that just that alone, how Putin refers to China there, how he plays up the idea. Uh, of you know the Chinese currency displacing the United States and you know, is just show how for example when you look at when he hosted Xi Jinping um, in uh, in Moscow um, uh, last year or the year before um, the level of political submissiveness that is quite overt is it's striking uh, contrast with. The narrative that Putin otherwise puts across of his own rule, because he essentially needs the he's decided he needs the Chinese as this major economic trading partner, counterbalance towards the West. But there is no question, and the Chinese know this as well in terms of how they deal with the Russians. There's no question that Russia uh, is the um, you know the secondary junior partner in a very power politics way. There, there's there's you know few. Uh, efforts as the russians i'm sure would prefer a lot more efforts to hide the imbalance there but but again this is not a um you know a a a stable grand um you know i would say longer term um russian renewal project under putin because the systemic weaknesses of his you know political structure economy um you know rule of law and the and the countermanding appeal of other uh, systems um you know, uh, so stark. What What is your sense of what Putin gained by giving this interview? Because, in in to my mind, I'm I'm, and it took me a while to sort of come to. I've been thinking about this interview since I watched it, whatever, four days ago, and I'm coming to a pretty strong conclusion that I think actually he played this one badly. Um, that he had the opportunity, especially with Tucker Carlson's audience. Uh, to really lean into some of the NATO claims that we both agree have some reasonableness to them, especially like in a pragmatic way, um, to really lean into those claims, to really lean into his um, sometimes conspiratorial, but also these days sounding much more <laughs> close to the truth about the dominance of the deep state in America and, and its circumventing presidents. I feel like he would have found a receptive and manipul manipulable audience to his own ends if he had talked more about those things. And he only got to that in like, like I said, a not, you know, 90 minutes in where I think almost every average American viewer had already shut it off, uh, you know, after the first 15 minutes about Yaroslav the Wise. It's like very right. much not aimed at an American audience. And if he wanted to speak to a Russian audience, well, he can, he can do that in a thousand different ways without needing to speak to an American journalist. And, and it also goes back to, I mean, I think it's a fantastic point, it goes back to the weakness of his uh, analytical uh, structures, especially the intelligence services telling him, because they would have briefed him extensively on, as they did when he mentions Tucker Carlson and the CIA. There are things that he clearly, you know, that there, there would have been a lot of uh, thinking going into having this interview and the fact that he was not aware that this would not be, I, I think the top line, you're correct. It did not, it was a failure on his part in terms of the intended audience, but he clearly did not realize that sufficiently or was not, you know, given even the analytical brief that what you need is something tight, as you say, focused on NATO, um, you know, keep it, you know, quick, whatever, 30 minutes. He believed that, you know, the figures of uh, on Twitter X of Tucker Carlson, how many views he gets, that, um, you know, you could go on this, you know, exponential rant and you're still going to retain viewership in a way that you perhaps, or you far more likely would be able to do in Russia in terms of, you know, the, the you know, political um, dialogue there. I also, I think, I think, the best moment or, or the key moment from his point of view would have been uh, where he mentions, um, you know, with Americans, uh, the border, you know, you have these other things. Why can't we just compromise? Yeah, what I, are we I thought doing? like that. That he, was his, he clearly knew was that so... was what to say to the audience. And he left it for hour right. two inexplicably right. like 
he could have, right. I think he really could have gotten a PR coup out of this and, and right. he kind of threw it away. And he could have done as well. He could have said, we're willing to talk about, you know, a nuclear arms control within the minute there. And it would have been, you know, almost certainly total BS, but he could have said it. Then he could have said the border thing. And that's essentially you've ticked that box and you've made sure that everyone who's going to watch has seen that. And of course, it plays pitch perfectly in a way uh, to the domestic environment now with, you know, with the House considering the Senate legislation without border action that a lot of Americans, you know, a lot of people in the Republican Party are saying, you know, why is it that we can do this for the international, for, you know, foreign allies, partners, and we can't secure our own border? I mean, there would have been a saliency there for him in terms of the argument. But again, he can't, I think, escape his... You know, he's not the genius uh, that he presents himself to be sometimes. There's a lack of introspection, uh, which I think is quite inherent to, you know, the political structure he's established. Weakness is anathema to the Russian political psyche. psyche. And and so, you know, he's sort of caught him. It was a failure is the top line. Yeah, I I think it, it, it was. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a comfort in a way, or I, I'm not sure it should be a comfort, uh, considering these are two nuclear armed nations, but, uh, who don't like each other very much, but, um, it is a comfort in a way to, to watch Putin misunderstand an American audience as much as Americans, I think, miss deeply misunderstand Russian intentions, Russian, I mean, um, if, if I could sum up what I, I think is very difficult for Russians to accept about America is that the average American's posture towards Russia is very much like the, the madman meme, right? I don't think about you at all. Um, whereas as Putin, but also the people that he represents in a very real way, they, they really think Americans wake up every morning thinking how to like humiliate Russia. Um, yeah. And this is just, you know, it's impossible to, to get, um, I think it will, I think this is a large part, maybe I'm doing a little too much like sort of ethnic pop psychology here, but that's, I, I think that's why a lot of the resets with Russia have failed. It's not um, it's not simply a realpolitik, like, okay, we might have common interests here. Let's try to work together here, right? Um, there's also this deep sense that the West is humiliating Russia, humiliated Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, there's, again, not a total... I don't think that's totally wrong. I mean, um, Russia... Uh, Russia, as opposed to the satellite states, and as opposed to like the fall of the wall was a glorious event for many people in Eastern Europe, right? But for Russians themselves, what they got after the Soviet Union and the reason for the strength bias that you're talking about in Russian leadership is they they, they got chaos and, and corruption and, you know, um, multiple different gangs of guys with guns, you know, demanding protection money from you. They got ruled by competing mafia bands basically um and and so you can understand from that perspective like they were uh a, a, the the uh one of two global preeminent powers with a vast territorial empire and afterwards they were sold for parts by their own you know sort of mafia oligarchs and that that is humiliating but from the american perspective they're like oh look at how people are making money in moscow like there are no communists you know <laughs> um right and and so there's this like lack of of understanding about the national humiliation factor and this this exactly this historical factor that putin started with there's a reason he started with that and not with nato it's it's because it's more important in many ways to the way that russia behaves on the global stage than any particularities about nato expansion in my view yeah, but I also think deep below the surface, and it's a, it is a critical point that, that we we have to remain fixated on, is also, which sparks essentially the invasion of Ukraine, uh, a really hostile ambition, an imperial, territorial and political ambition uh, to dominate, uh, you know, independent countries, uh, certainly proximate to Russia. And that's why you see as much of the corruption there's, you know, Hap was huge investment in the Russian military uh, coming up to the invasion of Ukraine. He believed he had built a hyper-modern, efficient military. Of course, a lot of the money had been stolen um, within the system. Um, but again, the, the, it's, it's the humiliation uh, point is real. But but so also is the guys. This is sorry the desire to dominate on the part of uh, Putin. You know these other countries without regard. You know. 
as a second yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah, these right. things are tied together, though, for Russians, right? Like the right. it is itself a national humiliation that all these territories that Putin and many other Russians consider part of the traditional Russian landmass are independent and have ideas of their own. Um, that that is itself a sort of humiliation. And and again, people always accuse me of like hating Russians because I have strong views about. But I think it's an understandable. I mean, how would we feel if we lost the entire Western United States to Mexico? Like, it would be a, a type of, of uh, humiliation from where we'd, we'd come before. So even though the Soviet Union was an evil empire and the Russian Federation today does evil things to the to Ukraine, to, you know, to the uh, Baltic states, et cetera, et cetera, like you can sort of understand, at least theoretically, why they feel claim to these things and why they feel humiliated by it. But I, I want to, I just, I just tend to think like, too bad, you know, <laughs> like you, you don't get to do that um, in response to your own humiliation. Uh, but the, I guess the question I want to close on here is uh, you, you alluded to this earlier, but I want to bring it out more explicitly. Um, Putin essentially in the last half of this interview really paints a picture um, of, of American decline uh, of of uh, global power of America, very very much in retreat. He makes these insinuations about going off the dollar. He compared America to the fading Roman Empire. The, these are all, I think, things that we are thinking of ourselves as well. I mean, I think Americans do have that that malaise of feeling like we are in decline. Um, we had this, you know, failure to withdraw from Afghanistan. Whatever one thinks about the withdrawal or not, but we covered on this program how completely botched something that should be relatively easy and simple for a country of the power and wealth of the United States to, to pull off. I mean, it seems like we are suffering on uh, new humiliations daily. You know, what, what yeah. is your view, though, of sort of the balance of power? Because as easy as it is to criticize the United States, I think people sometimes don't temper those criticisms with the weaknesses of our potential rivals, Right, that that they're not like on this trajectory to strength, and we're on the trajectory down. So, what do you think about those remarks that Putin made about American decline, and what's your assessment of the chance that he's right? I think he's ultimately wrong, assuming, which is a big assumption, of course, that we can resolve our issues with the national debt, um, you know, border security, for example, civil society, you know, political um, structures being able to hold true, because. If you look at demographics, you know, the United States is far stronger in a long term demographic trajectory than either Russia or China, who both face potentially catastrophic demographic challenges. But I think more broadly, the political uh, incentives for alignment with the United States, if the United States is, um, you know, willing to both push allies, which is really necessary in terms of Europe, um, but also, you know, attract them to mutual, you know, beneficial, high value goods trade and, um, you know, services economies, uh, technology, etc. The weaknesses of the Chinese and Russian systems are inherent in that they are autocratic. They are, the, you know, the few benefit to the expense of the many. Um, the, you know, capital investment, look at China, Xi Jinping is essentially destroying China's economy because he thinks he can decide where the best investment should be made instead of the free market. Um, corruption is endemic in Russia, lesser so in China, but still significant there, which you see in the military. The basic political structures are frail uh, and far less appealing, I think, than the American system. And especially that becomes relevant in terms of how other nations make the decisions about who to engage with in the longer term. And I think, you know, as one sort of concluding point here, there's a reason the United States has a lot more friends than Russia does. Um, and it's not about military power. It's really about people deciding over sustained governments of different left and right forms, that ultimately it's better to be with the Americans than the Russians or the Chinese. And that is America's opportunity, again, grounded with, especially I think that national debt point, resolving our own issues. The idea that America is in decline and China and Russia are in ascendancy is um, almost laughable, uh, with the caveat that the Chinese military in a conventional sense at the moment could defeat the US military. So we better get real about that China military challenge. Yeah, it's, um, I feel like the decline is real, but uh, people forget that it's, it's often it's a, a race between midgets, you know, uh, right. <laughs> like, right. as in, even if America declines from our, our previous posture, 
uh, that doesn't mean that the Russian and Chinese systems are, as you say, without their inherent flaws that uh, make it difficult for them to project power. So I guess I guess we'll find out. We, as the Chinese curse says, we live in interesting times. So yeah. Um, Tom, thank you. Tom Rogan, uh, Washington Examiner. You can find his work there. Thanks, Tom, for for coming on and, and really explaining a lot of these issues from the Putin interview. It was a great discussion. I appreciate it, Inez. Thanks so much. And thank you to our listeners. Um, I have a little script to read that I'm always behind on. Uh, thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stetman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez Stetman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.